Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. Welcome, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to our uh, special true crime edition of the Anthrax Attacks, retelling the 2001 Anthrax Attacks that have gone completely down the memory hole. Check that out if you have not yet. The second um, version of that is coming out at the end of this month. Please check out our other bonus episode for patrons only. We might unlock in the future, but right now it's only available for donors. And check out our episode that we just released about... Um, these uh, increasing far-right attacks and Trump's emboldening of fascists. So a couple uh, quick updates. Stan Lee passed away, you know, monumental figure, and I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that, but I wanted to read uh, a little message from him. I guess he used to have a little column called Stan's Soapbox. Yeah, I mean, apparently uh, he's he was one of the first subscribers to Counterpunch, too, according to no way. Jeffrey St. Clair, which is cool. I mean, I, I've i always been a bigger Jack Kirby fan. I was kind of always in that camp. There was kind of like a split among like Marvel fans for a long time who really came up with all those characters. Was it really Stan Lee? Was it Jack Kirby? Was it these other artists? And I was kind of always in the Jack Kirby camp, but... But yeah, I mean, sad he's he's gone. He's, he was kind of a living legend. Even though the last thing that he put his name on was Stripperella, a cartoon <laughs> with Pamela Anderson that he stole from a stripper that gave him a lap dance who sued him. Um, wow. Yeah. So he kind of squandered his like later years doing cameo. You know, I mean, he's old. He's an old guy. He's ninety five. So you right. Know, he was just having a good time. He was even in like trauma movies. I just watched Newcomb High Two. Or like Return of Nuka High, like the really new one, and he was in that a bunch, and I just thought that was weird. Oh, that is really interesting. <laughs> what the hell? Um, I, I mean, I should probably say this too. I don't know if you were there, Abby, but I met Stan Lee when I was like nine years old at um, at Fantasy Books and Games in Livermore. He was actually there just signing stuff for free. Oh, very cool. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I had met you know, a handful of like celebrities as a kid, mostly like sports stars. Like I met Hank Aaron when I was a kid with dad. I met Jose Canseco, a couple other baseball players. I can't even remember, mm-hmm. but they, I remember them all just being like assholes. And Stan Lee was actually really nice to me as a kid. And I'll, I'll always remember that. That it was like the one of the only times I met a celebrity who was like really like nice to children, <laughs> you know, not like a jerk. It's so weird when you meet celebrities and they are such dicks and they're just completely crush this vision that you had of them. And I find that so sad. That's happened to me so many times. Like even just acquaintances. Don't meet your heroes, man. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I know. I Uh, mean, it's sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's better to not meet people that you idolize. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, it's, and especially in this era, it's like everyone's just a complete disappointment. Um, I wanted to really quickly just read a little soapbox from Stan Lee, just responding to readers who would write in and say, why is there so much moralizing in their comic books? Mm-hmm. And he says, they take great pains to point out that comics are supposed to be escapist reading and nothing more, but somehow I can't see it that way. It seems to me that a story without a message, however subliminal, is like a man without a soul. In fact, even the most escapist literature of all, old-time fairy tales and most heroic legends contained moral and philosophical points of view. At every college campus where I may speak, there's as much discussion of war and peace, civil rights, and the so-called youth rebellion. 
as there is of our Marvel mags, per se. None of us lives in a vacuum. None of us is untouched by the everyday events around us, events which shape our stories just as they shape our lives. Sure, our tales can be called escapist, but just because something's for fun doesn't mean we have to blanket our brains while we read it. Excelsior, that was his little phrase. So very cool, I really love that. Because I, I hear people say that all the time. Oh, Paul, I'm just not into politics. I have other hobbies. It's not a hobby. It's something that affects every single thing that you do. This shapes every facet of our lives. So I thought that that was a pretty cool thing. And I had no idea that he was a Counterpunch subscriber. And uh, that made me like him a lot more. So rest in peace, Stan. Yeah, RIP. Um, it's, uh, she lived till 95. I mean, most yeah, of us good, can only be that life, lucky, dude. you know. Yeah, totally. And and guess who's unlucky? The guy who thought that he could be president, Robbie. <laughs> you mean the guy who looks like a human penis? <laughs> who literally looks like a glistening fucking dickhead. Dude, this guy, Michael Avenatti, the sle- he looked like, like a sleazy Italian mobster kind of guy. He was just a total attention whore. I felt like he was trying to seize like headlines every day. What do you know? He was just fucking arrested for domestic violence. Uh-huh. Did, did you hear about this? Yeah, I did. And... It's still being tossed. It's what's interesting is because it's still being tossed around back and forth. Where there's people who are like, we got we got to hold off on like reporting this because we're not sure. It could be like a fake concocted story by you know some right winger who wants to take him down. But what's what's interesting is the LAPD press department and their Twitter account officially announced that he was arrested. He was being held on bail. So it's a real thing. It's not like the LAPD is make is like a hoax. But then people were saying it was interesting to see people going here too, where they were like, maybe Trump hired some like Nixon style plumbers at the LAPD to concoct these charges on him, which was, I thought that was funny that people just couldn't even grasp or believe that he, you know, Michael Avenetti could be capable of this. So they thought it must have been a complete setup. Um, and then it kind of like went through this weird cycle where it's like, no, it's actually a hoax because his wife just came out with a press release saying it's totally fake. Well, no, this wasn't his wife who made the accusation. It was someone else. He has an ex-wife. He, but this is like a girlfriend apparently now. So it's totally real. The LAPD wouldn't be crazy enough to make up charges. Like, I mean, I mean, I'm not saying the LAPD isn't corrupt as fuck, but to just make up charges out of whole cloth and then announce he's being held on bail, that's a ludicrous thing if Trump was able to set that up. So let's just throw that theory out the window. And if Trump did that, they would be immediately discovered. Do you know what I mean? Like if he was able to pull off oh, something of like the LAPD making a false arrest on the lawyer who was like threatening him. I mean, it's just absurd. So, but I wanted to just mention this really quick. If you already thought he was a fucking douchebag, which you should, it says on his Wikipedia page that he is an avid race car driver and he's driven in approximately 33 professional sports car races. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see him just being some hot-headed total psycho, you know? Uh-huh. Well, he wanted an MMA he, like, fight Don exactly. Jr. Exactly, dude. Who does that? And now he's all over Twitter. He's like, I'm exonerated. Like, coming for you, <laughs> Jacob Wool. It's like, dude, did you punch your ex-wife or not? Mm-hmm. Because you were just arrested for domestic violence. So we'll find out what's going on. At first, when the Stormy Daniels thing broke and when he appeared on the scene, I was like, oh, this is great. This seems like really straightforward, a weaponized lawsuit you know, designed to rattle Trump and possibly take him down. And I was totally for it. And then I just started seeing him continuing to be all over the media, but basically putting out a lot of information that 
just seemed unnecessary for his case. I mean, even the, during the Kavanaugh hearings, when he came out and said he had someone that was gang raped by Kavanaugh, I mean, his credibility to me at that point wasn't good enough. Like, I'd, I wasn't even sure if that actually happened because he was the one who came forward with that. Yeah, and that actually hurt the case. Exactly. And how funny is it, too, that Steve Bannon has been going around promoting this guy and saying, like, yeah, he is a serious contender for 2020. Well, maybe Steve Bannon, you know, has a little spiritual appreciation for a fellow fucking domestic abuser. It's just funny that right. Steve Bannon would be like, appreciate him. He sees toxic masculine fire in him that he probably appreciates. Yeah, and for <laughs> people who don't know, Steve Bannon uh, jumped over newborn twins in his house to beat his wife, dragged her by the hair. That was one incident. Then another incident, she uh, refused to bring in groceries or something from the driveway, and he pulled her out of the car window by her head. Um, this is on top of Steve Bannon not even knowing the difference between his twin children. Yeah, and if anyone's listening who hasn't looked up this story, just as total side note, really interesting, bizarre story about Steve Bannon um, ruining a, a, I believe it was either a bathtub or a hot tub in this apartment where the landlord suspected they were cooking meth in it. And this is a really, biz just a bizarre, total side note story about Bannon that people should check out. I wonder if he was cooking meth for Roger Stone. Who knows, yeah. Interesting. Uh, well, maybe that's why he looks so... I, I don't know. Maybe alcohol just did that to him, but he looks super wrecked. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to this bizarre hysteria, just completely concocted hysteria from Tucker Carlson. So before we explain what happened, Code Pink goes to people's houses like Dick Cheney, um, Eric Prince, they've gone to his house before to stage a little protest Didn't outside. they go to Dianne Feinstein's even, house too? Yes, and John Kerry. They've even gone up and rang the doorbell. And then they Ooh. stage a little protest in the front of the house, and then they leave. This is something that's gone on for years during the Bush administration. In fact, I think it should happen more. So just remember that when you hear about the Tucker Carlson thing, which, you know, according to him, Antifa terrorists came down and tried to break down his door where his wife had to hide in a pantry. Oh, they cracked his door. And they were going to get, like, killed. That's what it, that's yeah, what cracked said. his door. Yeah. First of all, Tucker Carlson is a total lying, phony piece of shit. Um, he made himself sound like he was being attacked by a terrorist Antifa mob at his house. It could not be more false. Um, the worst thing that happened at the protest, and if you actually read on the ground firsthand accounts of people who are in this protest group, a lot of them weren't even like self-proclaimed Antifa people. So that's one thing, first of all. Um, these were just a lot of people who read It's Going Down News and saw his address and decided to form a protest. Now, the report that I read was from somebody who was on the ground and said that when that guy ran up and drew an anarchy symbol, so someone did vandalize part of Tucker Carlson's home in, in the sense that they spray painted an anarchy symbol on his driveway. That is the most egregious thing that happened at the protest. Now, you know, all, a lot of right wingers would be like, oh my God, you know, they, even that would be like horrifying to them. You know, they think that's terrorism or whatever. But even some of the protesters weren't happy that that happened. I mean, I, if anybody's been in protests, a lot of the times, you know, it's only like a few people or one person who does something like just commits a bunch of vandalism in the middle of like a regular protest. And you're just like, why are you doing that? So people who were there were not pleased that that happened. But at the same time, like, it's is it really that big of a deal? 
Like how big of a deal is that? And that's yeah. And and that's and yeah. so basically all these people came rallying around Tucker Carlson, including liberals like Stephen Colbert, saying this is disgusting, no one should have to endure this. And then of course, our favorite quote unquote anti war hero um said um that this was a t- this was terrorism. She called it terrorism. I just find that really interesting that Tucker Carlson, you know, the supposedly the only honest man on TV, the most anti-war pundit on TV, just made up a total fucking lie about what happened to him as like a basically a publicity stunt. I mean, it really it, if you think about it, that's really what it was. I didn't even know what had actually happened, but I saw Tulsi's reaction and I was like, "Good god." And I, I just assumed that, you know, something happened, that there really was a mob who came and were like pounding on his door. And then when I read the police report, I was like, OK, this is so fake. There was probably 12 to 15 protesters along with a couple legal observers to make sure nothing illegal happens. <laughs> like literally, that's what they're there for. And so they go to his house. I guess one of them had a tambourine and they're just chanting outside of his house. And yeah, some guy went rogue and spray painted an, an anarchist symbol immediately the return to civility call i'm sorry tucker carlson is one of the most racist people on tv and fox news is essentially a de facto like propaganda arm of the trump administration his rhetoric has meaning and it has consequences and especially with this caravan going on and all of these fascist attacks that have taken the lives of over a dozen people in the last month it's very serious yeah and and as we were saying before like the to me the barometer of like tucker carlson's real racism is the fact that he despises legal immigrants as well just like steve bannon he talks about legal immigrants a lot in very negative way i mean he did a whole segment about the roma people and how disgusting exactly the most marginalized he's talking about basically the gypsies like throughout history one of the most marginalized groups and here he is using a platform on fox news to millions of people talking about how disgusting and they are and harmful to these communities it's insane that people you know, who who are so hungry and thirsty for anything remotely anti-war sounding can look past all that shit. And I, and I heard Kyle Kalinske talk about this, and I really thought what he said was really smart, is that even if he says true things sometimes about war, in all, you take it all in context, he's still a snake oil salesman because he's still saying Trump is anti-establishment. He rails against the elites, the liberal elites, the DC elites, even like right-wing elites. But he'll still sell you on this idea that somehow Trump isn't an elite and that, you know, that Trump is the solution to like fight this. So on some level, he knows he's a grifter. He's a very skillful grifter. He's been actually at this racket a lot longer than all these other grifters like Ben Shapiro, Dinesh D'Souza, all these other people. He's been in the game for decades. I mean, he was writing for the Weekly Standard in 1990. He studied under fucking Bill Kristol. He used to work for Bill Crystal, So he's gone through every little scene. He used to be a neocon errand boy. And now he's this virtue signaling, you know, acts like the, you know, he's anti-war because that's the grift. You get people with their defenses down and then you can indoctrinate them with all this other right wing shit. This is the, so Kyle Kalinske brought up on a, a TYT episode that, that Carlson is a very skillful snake oil salesman. Because ultimately, he uses a lot of this rhetoric that's very enticing to people who understand that the elites are dangerous, who understand that the DC orthodoxy is dangerous, who understand that Russiagate 
is mostly a concoction and it's fake, who understand that Cold War 2.0 is dangerous. Um, he uses those things to get your defenses down to indoctrinate you with anti-immigrant racist shit and also, and also these beliefs that Trump is the antithesis to these things, even though Trump is an establishment elitist. So I thought Kyle made a very smart point with that. But then Chank brought up something interesting where he's like, yeah, there's someone on the TYT staff who has this conspiracy theory, he called it, that Tucker Carlson's goal is to red pill you you know, to, to try to get your defenses down so he can red pill you with like this anti-immigrant right wing shit. And I'm like, well, that is actually exactly what he's doing. That ad, That's not a conspiracy theory. That's very clear. Even if... Well, I kind of filled in some of the blanks there. Kyle didn't didn't say that exactly. He just said that he's a very skillful snake oil salesman who ultimately runs cover for Trump while pretending that the elites you know, that tr that Trump is somehow a solution to these elites in this DC orthodoxy and all this other shit. Um, so no, Kyle didn't say that, but, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't understand why so many people are so obsessed with defending Tucker Carlson. It's a very weird time. And it's actually an interesting juxtaposition when you compare Tucker Carlson to another previous iteration of like an ant, like a, someone that I thought at the time was genuinely anti-war and who was on mainstream TV, Keith Olbermann. Compare him to Keith Olbermann. There is no comparison. Keith Olbermann, it was genuinely very anti-Bush and anti-war. He was, he was railing against a sitting president of the United States. Someone sent him a fake anthrax letter and the FBI came to his house and told him, keep quiet about this. We're going to investigate it. This was back in like 2006. Someone sent Keith Olbermann a hoax anthrax letter. The FBI told him to shut up about it until they got back to him. And then a few days later, Keith Olbermann wakes up to a New York Post editorial making fun of him called Powder Poof Spooks Keith. You know, and, and I don't remember nearly as much solidarity or press around that, that someone from the Bush administration obviously leaked and tried to embarrass him for being scared of getting an anthrax hoax letter. Like, that's a really chilling, weird thing for the Bush administration to do to that man. That's the government doing it to a reporter. Tucker Carlson got an an a fucking anarchy sign spray-painted on his driveway, and all these people are rallying behind him, acting like this is the biggest deal in the world? You gotta be fucking kidding me. He's a hypocrite. He's a grifter. He's a snake oil salesman. End of story. So this brings me to what Trump said today, Robbie. I mean, keep in mind that he knows what happened to Tucker Carlson. He knows that the Daily Caller is Tucker Carlson's news publication, right? So he's basically directly talking to Tucker Carlson's audience and obviously whoever else is, you know, on Fox News. He basically threatened and encouraged fascist violence in the streets. So here's what he said. This is in regards to Antifa. He said, they better hope that the opposition decides not to mobilize. He says, because if they do, they're much tougher, much stronger, potentially much more violent, and Antifa is going to be in big trouble. This is all fake. They continue to try to conflate Antifa with fascists and terrorists. It's absurd. So Trump knows exactly who he's talking to here. He knows the audience. He understands exactly the dog whistles. I don't know if he's, what exactly he's referring to. I'm assuming it's in reaction to the Tucker Carlson thing, which is really nothing. And Trump's responding to that directly and saying, they better watch out 
because we're going to mobilize stronger, more viciously. He's talking about fascism. He's literally threatening full-blown, full-throttled fascism and fascistic violence against protesters. I mean, is anyone listening here? Because I just saw the neoliberal blob machine talking hysterically about what he said about Mueller. Well, what about this? He's talking about the military and police as well as giving a wink and a nod to these neo-Nazi militias and brown shirts that are acting on their own without even being codified by state agencies. And he's encouraging them to go beat up and use violence against protesters in the streets. It's just another day in America, Robbie. Just another day. Another day, another bizarre fascist threat from President Trump. I don't know why the media isn't taking this seriously and i don't i also don't know why the media just only covered q anon for a couple of days and then dropped it because we we've been paying attention to that for a while and that's what q anon seems like it's building up to do is it's building up to mobilize and militarize and radicalize trump's base to be violent brown shirts to protect his presidency and encourage the mass arrest and murder of leftists i mean so it's it's shocking to me that this type of stuff isn't being taken more seriously. I mean, Michael Moore and his movie took it seriously. He's using this powerful rhetoric to serve multiple purposes. He is not only dog whistling to the actual fascists, like the literal fascist neo Nazis, but he's also just dog whistling, not even dog whistling, but he's also just encouraging his regular supporters to be like loyalist brown shirts because they think Antifa is like the most dangerous terrorist organization in America. I mean, we watched the Who is America show by Sasha Baron Cohen. That final episode was chilling that he basically got that guy to assassinate, you know, alleged Antifa members by putting like little uh, detonators on their shirts. I mean, you have to watch the episode for yourself to understand what I'm talking about. But we're, I mean, most Republicans out there who are Trump's supporters they view Antifa as like a dangerous terrorist organization. That's how, that's how like manipulated and distorted their view of it already is. So this is just like taking it just a step further than that and saying like, better watch God. out. We're in bit much bigger numbers. I mean, and it's also kind of, it's, if you read between the lines also, it's very similar to what Alex Jones will say about like, we're way more armed. We're way more right. ready to fight than you are. Like, if you want this fight, you better fucking watch out, motherfuckers, because we will kill you. Alex Jones doesn't say literally that, but he basically does now. I mean, it's a threat to, I think it's almost like a threat of civil war. It is. If you really, you know, you don't barely have to read between the lines for that. It, it definitely seems like civil war making talk. I'm just curious and disturbed by where Trump will go next when he try when he tries to, you know, fan the flames of civil war or things like that again. I mean, it's yeah, very very disturbing. Yeah, no, he's basically saying the opposition to Antifa. So what does that mean? That means the fascists who have been murdering people. Fascists have already taken the lives of over a dozen people just in the last month. This isn't a fucking joke. Yeah, I mean, I don't this even... This is happening. I don't even think that's... I mean, I think that he is making it wider than that. He's not... He, oh, I know. He wants to... He wants every... Because everybody on, on his... In his base is a is opposition to Antifa. Right. You know, going from the most neo-Nazi racist militia person to like a Fox News watching grandma moron. Right. 
Right, now they, it's been mainstream. Absolutely. But yeah. I think it's really fascinating. And he knows exactly what he's doing because someone responded to me when I said, you know, another day uh, President Trump is calling for fascist violence and encouraging it. Someone was like, Abby, he doesn't actually know what he's saying here. And how long are we going to let that slide and use that excuse? I mean, I just saw an interview with him 10 years ago talking about the Reform Party and how anything that David Duke is a part of should be shunned. David Duke is a racist and a bigot. And then you see him on Jake Tapper running for president in 2016. And he's saying, I don't know. I have to get to know David Duke. I don't know. Did he endorse me? I have no idea if he's a bad person or not. And Jake Tapper's like, I'm talking about the KKK. Can you denounce the KKK? And he's like, I don't know. He's like, I'd have to know if they're like, I'd have to meet them on an individual basis, on a case by case basis. Like, are they good guys? I don't know. I'm gonna have to find out. Well, I mean, come on. That's that proves it right there. I mean, when I first saw that clip, I don't even. I think that I thought it was weird, but I didn't come to the conclusion that he was actually le- leaving that door open. I did interpret it at the time as he was he stumbled and he and he fucked up. But now that you mentioned that, I remember that now that he did overtly denounce David Duke like years before he ran for president. So he definitely knows who he is. Right. So yeah, that no, he's that, doing right, this on purpose. That I think you're absolutely right, and I think that that needs to be. We need to start looking at Trump as doing these things very purposely. It doesn't matter that he's sloppy. It doesn't matter that his org- administration is disorganized. He he is using this rhetoric very effectively, and and with the knowledge of what kind of power it holds. Obviously, he doesn't care about the consequences being being bad. As long as the no, rhetoric he helps it. him. Yeah, as long right. as the rhetoric helps him, he's going to keep using it. Right. And talk about what else he said in the interview. Oh, yeah. I mean, he also just said some totally batshit things about how voter fraud is done. And he he was saying that the reason Democrats win so many elections is because they have people that go to vote, walk around the block go to their car and change their clothes and put on a new costume or outfit and then come back into the polling place and vote again. And they keep doing this over and over and over again. I mean, it's even beyond the type of like conspiratorial rhetoric that like a charlatan grifter like James O'Keefe tries to put out, you know? And then speaking of which, Trump, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, also paid James O'Keefe 10 grand that we know on record to fund Project Veritas before he ran for mm-hmm. president. That's what we know on mm-hmm. record. I mean, fuck, who knows what kind of right-wing billionaires or right-wing, you know, r- elites or oligarchs are actually funding these people. But yeah, it's very, it, I mean, it's one of his weirdest interviews I've ever read. And that's saying a lot. I mean, he keeps getting weirder. His rhetoric keeps getting more intense, um, more manipulative, more polarizing. Uh, I don't. I just don't know where it's going to go from here. It's going to get worse and worse. My God, yeah, I love how they, these people think that voter fraud. They just keep uh, perpetuating this insane narrative. Like it couldn't be more false. There's literally no cases of voter fraud. I think there was like two in the entire country. And voter so fraud is I, also. And he has to know that. And voter fraud is also like it's like a federal crime if you like so the idea that the democratic party or whatever would be able to hire all these fake voters to keep voting again it wouldn't be that easy to hire someone to commit a federal crime (laughs) like it's you're actually asking a lot for someone to do that but robbie they're all crisis actors they were all at the the las vegas massacre acting as dead bodies so it's it's not that hard apparently there's a giant database of just crisis actors ready to rock get them in the voting booths get him to act like mass shooting victims. I mean, 
it's pretty cool that we have so many people in this country ready and willing to do that kind of stuff. I can't believe it. So it's going down as a great news source. Everyone should follow them. They're super grassroots, uh, more anarchist bent, um, but covering just really crazy protests and people's movements all over the country and the world. And uh, I'm getting this from their Twitter, even though this wasn't from them. They were just reporting on how a new article, I think from the Daily Beast, about the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre, how apparently people that were in the same circle of the guy who committed the massacre were planning another one. And they said that the Pittsburgh massacre was just a dry run. That's what um, one of these brothers said. Mm -hmm. And long story short, uh, they were working with Jack Sobobiak on a Seth Rich documentary. Jack Sobobiak hired these neo-Nazis to follow him around with a camera. Now he's claiming, no, he had no idea who these people were. There's all these photos of them following him around. Mm -hmm. I mean, they claim that he actually knew exactly who they were and that he sympathized with their neo-Nazi beliefs. So which is it? Hey, well, Pretty yeah, bizarre that's story here. It's obviously, I mean, it's obvious that someone like Jack Posobiec is is directly, you know, telling neo-Nazis that he sympathizes with their beliefs and then he's trying to do like a big tent grifter approach, you know, to try to get his way into the White House, which apparently he did um, at the beginning of Trump's presidency, which is so crazy if you think about it. The first time I ever saw this guy was he was periscoping live inside Comet Pizza. That was his like debut journalism. That's like two years ago. He's got like over a hundred thousand Twitter followers now. It's oh no, very, he has like three hundred something. Holy thousand. shit! He's like, I, yeah, no, he is a huge. It's very, space. very suspicious. He is clearly being artificially signal boosted by who I have no idea. There is no explanation other than artificial signal boosting for his popularity. Yeah, I know. I would admit if he had done like original journalism or something consistently enough where it would make sense that he built up a following, but it absolutely does not make sense. Yeah, it's like Cernovich's following makes more sense. It, than it absolutely him. does. Yeah, because Cernovich has done, you know, he's been doing things for longer. He had that stupid, you know, pickup artist blog before he started right. doing politics. That makes more sense. This does not make sense. This is like total, like total shill, 100%. But but I feel like the neo-Nazi filming him goes deeper than him just wanting a Big Ten approach. I mean, I've never no, hired of course. people of course. who will commit a fucking massacre and kill 12 Jewish people. Like, these are the people in your goddamn circle, dude? Well, of course. I mean, even, and we already know that he and a lot of the people of his ilk who claim they're not neo-Nazi and who even claim they're not alt-right because they don't want to be associated with Richard Spencer, they use terms like white genocide and stuff too. Right. And they actually stopped using it because they know or they learned eventually yeah. that society no society at large realizes that that is a, a blatant, purposely injected, coded neo-Nazi term. That is 100% clear. That's like even beyond this idea that globalist right. is a neo-Nazi dog whistle. This is like so clear cut, you cannot even make a coherent argument against it. It is 100% proven. I just don't understand how he has any credibility at all, even among Trump supporters, after he was clearly associated with a fucking domestic terrorist who just committed a mass shooting. The worst anti-Semitic attack in, in this nation's history. He's talking about Israel every day and how Hamas is a terrorist organization. Yeah. Like, what is going on here? I don't think that that type of stuff will have any effect. I mean, even if it was found out that Mike Cernovich was friends with the Vegas shooter. Right. No, right. no, one, no one would care. Yeah, Robbie, I just read this good article about Faith Goldie, one of these other um, fash 
you know, hot neo-Nazi girls who has like a, a YouTube presence and she's getting more popular. She's in Canada. She tried to run for like the Toronto mayor. I think I saw it. Anyways. I saw, you used yeah. a clip of her in your new episode, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. This article was very good because even though Faith Goldie is one of the most overt and blatant neo-Nazis out there online and she's gone on Daily Stormer. So anyway, this woman who went to high school with her, who was like very startled by her transformation and metamorphosis into like a straight neo-Nazi because she says Faith Goldie used to be like a relatively normal you know, lib mm-hmm. back in college and high school, who was like a very, you know, trying to always get in the spotlight, you know, one of those people who wanted the grift, like trying to ride a wave of wherever she was most popular, trying to be most seen. Anyway, long story short is this woman met up with her to try to interview her about like, what the hell happened to you? And she said immediately, like the roles became reversed. The second she met up with Faith, she immediately was like on the defense. Like she says that this is why this new kind of wave of neo-Nazism and the neo-fascists are so insidious and they mask it all in jokes and triggering and like the Kekistani memes and all this stuff. She was like, all of a sudden she she was like on the defense to Faith. Like Faith was like, oh, I'm sorry. Were you triggered when I went on Daily Stormer? Did that trigger you? I'm so sorry. <laughs> and the woman was like, wait, why am I like all of a sudden feeling like I'm like being berated when I'm just simply confronting you about how you said overtly Nazi shit and you're encouraging like ethnic cleansing. Uh, and she said that all of a sudden she was like trying to defend herself. Oh, you stupid snowflake. Like, oh, I was just joking. Oh, it's so, it is so fascinating. I mean, it's such a blend now where ne- actual neo-Nazi groups have managed to get all these other you know, right wingers to adopt their language, and I, I genuinely think some of them don't even realize it. That's mm-hmm. how stupid they are. Mm-hmm. But it really goes to show how engineered this has been. And I'm not saying Faith Goldie isn't. I mean, it sounds like she's. If she goes on the Daily Stormer, anyone who goes on the Daily Stormer knows exactly what they're doing. Hundred percent. There's no debate about that. Right. But yeah, it's really. Um, it is really interesting how. Only a few of these actual neo-Nazis will admit their tactics and how they're designed to be insidious and inject themselves into the larger dialogue on the internet. Like Weave admitted to me in a Twitter thread that the Jews did 9-11 website that he made wasn't done as a joke or to parody 9-11 truthers. It was done to actually inject anti-Semitic racism to the wider internet and it was able to be propelled. He admitted it's able to be propelled easier because it's done in joke form. But the goal of it is to indoctrinate racist thought. That's a very candid admission of what a lot of these people have actually accomplished. Absolutely. So, absolutely. And it's a spectrum. It's a huge spectrum. I mean, you even see like someone dumb like Owen Benjamin, um, that like full, that musician com- slash quote unquote comedian guy. The one who's obsessed with Dave Hogg's pubic hair? Yeah, that guy. Like, he'll sing songs about white genocide and stuff. And I sing songs about... Yeah, and I genuinely (laughs) think he's too stupid, too fucking dumb to even understand that these are purposely neo-Nazi engineered talking points like put into the movement. He's just a grifter, you know? And so he's just picking up on the things he sees all his idiot MAGA fans saying. Um, It's just a really weird thing, though. It is very, very weird. Did you see that... Did you see that uh, black woman who raised like $150,000 from Trump supporters because she just put a MAGA hat on? No. And she was like, 
that's it. She's like, I'm being kicked out of my house. My parents are so intolerant. She's like, just because I'm a black conservative. And then she raised 150K from Trump supporters and then came out and was like, I hate Trump. She's like, wow, easiest money I ever made. And everyone's like, oh my God, how horrifying. I can't believe you did this. It's like, what did she do? She just revealed the idiocy of Trump supporters that they're going to throw money at a minority wearing a Trump hat. Like, that's how desperate they are for validation that they're, like, not racist. That they're like, uh-huh. oh, my God, a black person also supports Trump. Like, quick. And it's so funny, too, Abby. Without fail, almost all the people who get offended at me saying things about Tucker Carlson or Trump, I go to their Twitter timeline, and it's without fail. Almost all Gosh. of them retweet Candace Owens. And I'm just like, dude, you fucking phony motherfuckers. It's like, that's your standard of someone who's, like, credible? Then you have zero leg to stand on. Like, don't even come. It's just, like, insane. That's why Roxanne's interview is so good. Everyone should check out the new Empire Files episode with Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz on the white nationalist roots and their ties to the mass shooting epidemic. And she talks about the, the notion of white nationalism and how it pulls other people in who are not white because it's not about being white. It's about the idea of acceptance in, in a white nationalist society and white nationalist circles. And I wanted to show Candace Owens <laughs> during that part, but I thought it'd be like too much, <laughs> like show oh, her yeah. and Trump, because <laughs> it's just it's just so on the nose. Well, I heard this um, comedian named Joe DeRosa, who I who I think is like pretty smart. I, I I listen to him on other podcasts. He's he's very funny. He's actually on Better Call Saul. He plays like a the vet veterinary character in that. Um, and I was astonished hearing him talking about the Proud Boys on a podcast. And saying no, they're not, they're not they're not white nationalists. Stop saying that. They're they're just a bunch of guys. They have like Hispanic guys and Asian guys in their group. You're saying they're white nationalists, and it's like the lack of understanding of these very basic concepts is just really surprising. I mean, Gavin McGinnis has managed to get a lot of people to um, defend and just to like run cover for him. I mean, he tried to like be part of the New York comedy scene for years and years and years. So there's all these comedians that defend him and don't think he's that bad or harmful. And yeah, it's just strange to listen to people, you know, defending the Proud Boys at this well, point. Well, apparently Gavin McGinnis, uh, someone left like a little sign in his front lawn saying like hate doesn't belong here. And so now he's milking this for all it's worth and saying, you know, he's being victimized by terrorists in his neighborhood and... Um, and how all of his neighbors hate him and poor guy. I just found out that the Proud Boys started because it was just a bunch of like male chauvinists who were just obsessed with Gavin McGinnis's radio show. And they would just like hang out all the time and watch him do his radio show. And then like eventually he was like, all right, like we should just start a gang, guys. Like, let's start a fight club. No. I just can't believe how much it's spread. Like the fact that he has so there's so many chapters and that it's really taken off the way it has is very odd to me. Yeah, and I think it's definitely being funded and propped up by you know shadowy organizations. I'm not going to speculate, but yeah, it is it is suspicious how viral um, it got and how big the Proud Boys do seem to be now. But then again, is it because what he did with Vice? I mean, he changed the culture. You know, he injected all of this into the culture and really shifted the way that people think about these issues. Yeah, I mean, and Fox News used to host him on um, Red Eye like constantly, so he's like. He's been boosted on these mainstream media networks. Mm-hmm. Facebook still allows CRTV to advertise, which is, I don't know for sure who owns it. I think it's Robert Mercer, but I'm not sure. It's a TV, online TV network that has Gavin McGinnis show. And on Facebook, I constantly see on my feed these promoted Gavin McGinnis videos. 
And I'm just thinking, how crazy is that that Media Roots has been banned from promoting posts for the last like six months and they're still allowed to promote? Right. After he says choke a tranny. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. And it's, I mean, and, and we already know, you know, Facebook just had another scandal come out about it where they're running. I, I forgot exactly what it is. Something about they're consulting with a PR firm that's put out like right wing propaganda about George Soros, too, recently. And this was all revealed in the New York Times. And this is what happens when you get it bogged down in this obsession with Russia and make it all about Facebook running memes of Satan arm wrestling Jesus and making that sound, you know, making it sound like that had a drastic impact on the election. Meanwhile, Facebook is collaborating with Cambridge Analytica and these right wing groups. I mean, and Weekly Standard, <laughs> like what? It's just, yeah. it's like, that's the real scandal here. So yeah, it's, it's, it's sad that we've, we're still getting bogged down in this like Russia fucking obsession. Yeah, and the the thousands protesting the Jeff Sessions firing. I mean, um, because they they really did think that Jeff Sessions leaving meant something about Trump protecting the collusion narrative with Russia. It's like, what is what are you talking about? It was just a matter of time before Jeff Sessions uh, left. We we knew that this was coming for like the last year. So I don't know how this has anything to do with Russia or Mueller. It's so funny. I mean, the whole thing is just ridiculous. Protect Mueller. Even the fact that Trump would be act like Jeff Sessions is such an impediment to his presidency and all this shit. It's just absurd that his follower, that Trump's followers, aren't being like, dude, you hired this guy. Right. Like, you made your own bed, dude. <laughs> like, why did you hire this guy that you're so upset at? You never see that argument. It's just like, yeah, like fire Sessions. He's a... F- he he didn't he recused himself. Like we need someone better. It's like, well, Trump hired that dude. Do you Drain realize- the swamp, fire sessions. It's like, what? Well, let's talk about the California wildfires because all of a sudden this happened very quickly, uh, destroyed tens of thousands of structures, homes, uh, countless acres of land, forests. Just absolutely devastating, Robbie. I don't think there's ever been a more damaging fire in the history of the state. And that really says it all because every couple months you see, you know, record-breaking temperatures, record-breaking weather, hurricanes like we've never seen before, fire, tornadoes mm-hmm. last year. Uh, so that's that's how scary climate change is becoming. And because there's been no rain at all in California, um, a fire caught and it just erupted. And 59 people everyone's dead house so is burning. De- 59 people dead. 59 people dead. And almost 300 missing, which probably oh. means that a large portion of those people are also dead. I have a, oh my God. I have a good friend who uh, lost her home in the Paradise Fire. You know, I'll post a little link to her, her crowdfunding. She's trying to rebuild her house, even though she has insurance. Um, she still has to pay mortgage and insurance on the land. While her house is burned down. Like, people don't realize, like, how this shit works. Just because your house burns down doesn't mean, like, insurance takes care of everything. You still have a mortgage. You still have the policy. It's really, really sad. And uh, my heart's breaking for her right now and and her family. It's just so crazy that Trump would trot out that completely false manufactured talking point about how the forest land... And and basically what he's saying is like the lack of logging, commercial logging, is the reason why all these forest fires are happening. And it's mismanaged. Even though the land 
mo- almost all the federal forest land in the United States is federally owned. <laughs> so ultimately, it still goes back to Trump's doorstep, even if he's making that argument. It's just so bizarre that he even trots out these arguments and his own supporters just like echo them without even like considering the logic behind it. I watched an enraging Facebook video last night from a guy who lived near paradise. You would think, oh, this guy would have some compassion. You know, he's he was showing all the dead trees and why he thinks the fire started. Like, look at all these dead trees, you know, rotting trees. Yeah, there's a lot of rotting trees in California forests. Like I've been camping in areas like that. That's the cycle of a forest. Half of it's dead. And and so the guy, I thought he was going to end the video by being like, you know, maybe we should do something. Maybe the federal government should come in and clean up some of these rotting trees. And he ends the video by saying, this is what happens when you ban logging, fucking libtards. And I was just like, wow, you disgusting piece of human trash. You're fucking fellow human beings are being burned alive not too far away from where you're filming this video and that's what you have to say it makes me sick to to, to even think like i can't even think of a uh a, a, a equivalent example on the like like liberals for example like even generic liberals who gross me out I can't even think of an example. I mean, example. I can. Uh, the people who think about hurricanes and they're like, oh, well, they're in a red state, so let them drown. I've heard people say that. Well, that's, yeah, that's a really heartless, I mean, that's a particularly heartless example. But blaming, like, but this, right. I think it's different to blame a Republican voter for a natural disaster. <laughs> I, I would just astonish watching this video. And it made me so mad because so many of the things he was saying in it were just false. First of all, logging, commercial logging does not prevent forest fires. It's not designed to do that. It doesn't even make sense. Clear cutting and fire prevention stuff does prevent some forest fires. But yet again, that's federally managed. So again, that's Trump's responsibility. That's the Trump government's responsibility. But even that doesn't hold up because 90% of the fire that's happening in paradise right now is shrubs and and human-made structures. The, the amount of actual like forest land that's going up is very low percentage. That is not the main driver of the for, the fire. In fact, in most cases, it is not the main driver of a mass wildfire. Human structures. I mean, it's sad that you even have to explain that. I know. <laughs> we already know the San Jose Mercury News. We already know that PG&E was reporting on on the radio sparking power lines in the center of where the fire started in paradise hours before it started. And they also announced on Twitter that they were going to do mandatory blackouts because they knew the windstorm was going to be so bad in the paradise area. They announced it twice on Twitter and they didn't do it. They did not do the mandatory blackout. That's like the most, what, what more of chain of custody do you need that they are at very least very negligent? They knew, They even stated they knew the danger of keeping the power lines active during that big of a windstorm. Go to all, any of these areas in California to think that these fires are started by, you know, mismanagement of forests is ludicrous. It's obvious oh, that it's power offensive. lines, power lines crisscross throughout so many trees and and shrubs and bushes in residential areas that one power line sparking in the middle of like a, a, you know, a foresty or really like sort of rural area, that'll, that's all it takes to start a wildfire with wind. Yeah, that's also, all it takes. That, yeah, that's obviously how it started. But the reason that it's so devastating is because of climate change. Like that is 
absolutely what is going on. Yeah, the it, dryness. It's drier every year. Yeah. The dryness. The second that the fire spreads, it, it picks up and it just goes because there's been absolutely zero rain. Um, which is unheard of when it's almost December. This is the least in Northern California. This is the most fucked up weather in Northern California I have ever witnessed in my, you know, thirty-seven years living in in Northern California. Um, the, it, it's pretty bizarre how little rain there has been. Um, you know, and we're not even talking about the drought anymore uh, for some reason. But there's literally been no major rains, and that is right. unheard of. I mean, like especially where I live. We get like a deluge, a downpour that's like a rainstorm basically for like weeks on end. Nothing. And Robbie, you're talk about what you're experiencing right now. Oh, yeah. I you're live affected by this too. I live in like a higher altitude area of Oakland, California, and the smoke is so bad out here right now, like a week and a half after this fire started, that it smelled like I left my window open downstairs in my basement. And it smells like a campfire downstairs in my basement right now. That's how much smoke is outside. That's that's almost like 100 miles away, more away from paradise. I'd say probably 150. California is in a really bad place right now. And it is yeah, and, insane yeah. that the President of the United States would blame Californians in the wake of this. I mean... I, I, it's just so heartless. And the fact that, you know, his own supporters would echo those thoughts and say that libtards who are pro-regulation are to blame for this. I mean, it is astonishing that you can't just have compassion for people. It's horrifying. There's no words to describe the empathy that I feel for everyone that's been a victim of this fire. My good friend, Peter Joseph, the, the founder of the Zeitgeist Trilogy and the Zeitgeist Movement, his good friend just lost her home as well. So two people through friends have lost every single thing that they've ever owned. Um, and the homes that they probably, you know, invested years of their life's income to buy a home, um, countless homes. It's not just the rich people in Malibu who maybe have other homes. It's so many people that we know and not just the people who've lost their homes. I mean, think about the animals, Think about all the little critters. To go back to the death toll too, usually, yes, there's fires and they happen every year, right? And usually there's a couple people who die because they don't evacuate quickly enough and it's tragic. 59 people, and a lot of these people did evacuate. They burned alive in their cars. Their cars melted because the fire was so hot on both sides of these streets when they're trying to leave. I mean, can you imagine? And these hundreds of people missing. It's just horrifying. And to not sit back as the government looking at this crisis, at this climate crisis and saying, what can we do? How do we get off of coal? How do we get off mm -hmm. of oil? How do we invest in renewable energy? Nothing, nothing. And you look at the Democratic Party, where are they? And I'm, where are they? And, and the, I mean, this is going to sound trivial. And, you know, and I, and I realize like how, how lucky I am for not being in the middle of this awful situation. But I'm sitting here downstairs in my basement right now with the window open. My eyes are watering. My throat mm -hmm. is scratchy feeling from just being outside for 20, 30 minutes today. If I'm feeling this 150 miles away, this is like an environmental crisis. And I just can't even imagine the what, you know, even the survivors of the fire in paradise, what kind of you know, health effects they will experience after that. Breathing in that much smoke, it's, it's just horrible to think about. Horrible. I just, I saw these photos of farm workers. It looked like a dystopian future where 
you know, we're living in the aftermath of a nuclear fallout and there's just farm workers unmasked, just exposed, just working. And you can just see the fire behind them, like in the distance. It's like, what is going on here? There's no masks available in any of the, I went into Rite Aid today and one across the street too, to check and they're all sold out. The state of California doesn't even have like a public outreach campaign to give out masks or breathing, protective breathing gear for anybody. Like maybe maybe there are some local things happening like up in paradise, but not in any of the surrounding areas. I have not heard anything. Yeah, imagine babies. I mean, I, I don't know what people are doing to deal with this. I'm lucky to be away from the fire too because I'm in, you know, kind of the middle of LA and I'm not out by the coast. But for a couple of days here, it was just really, really dark. And uh, you could see ash falling like rain everywhere. So one thing that I'm reminded of when we're talking about this is the super exploited, the prisoners who are forced to fight these fires for pennies, basically, like $3 an hour or whatever they're out there, mandated to fight these fires. On the other hand, you have privatized firefighting forces. And I want to do an Empire Files episode about this because this shit's going to keep getting worse. And now we're in a, in a place in class society where now the rich can just have their own firefighting forces to protect their own homes. So I wanted to transition over to the election results and just the election in general. We had a big midterm election November 6th, and we were told by progressives and Democrats that it would be an enormous tsunami, a blue tsunami that was going to take over the House and Senate. Well, it wasn't that at all. It was uh, at best a blue trickle I think 30 seats were gained in the House, so the Democrats barely took back the House. And the Republicans actually gained and strengthened their foothold in the Senate. You know, for the most part, um, it is amazing that we've been able to stave off uh, the complete lockdown and potentially fascist takeover of the entire government from the Republican Party, um, from the Democrats taking back the House for now. So that that's good, I guess. But then you look at the Democratic Party leaders, Nancy Pelosi, somehow she's still saying the same thing that she was 15 years ago. So 15 years ago, she was saying impeachment for Bush was off the table. Now she's saying essentially the same thing. She was warning before the election that if Democrats took control of the House again, that she would initiate an investigation into Trump's tax returns. That's how out of touch she is. So no, not impeachment of Kavanaugh. No, not impeachment of Trump. And not really any opposition to any of these policies that are extremely detrimental to society. So we can count on her and good old Chuck Schumer to really uh, take the resistance by the horns. So I read this really amazing analysis um, from a website called the Movement for a People's Party. We want third parties in this country. We want ranked choice voting. We want to expand our options when we're you know, participating in democracy. We don't want to keep choosing from the lesser of two evils or a two-party dictatorship that essentially has bipartisan consensus on the worst policies that I do not subscribe to at all. Just like Eugene Debs said, I would rather vote for something that I want and not get it than vote for something that I don't want and get it. So anyway, the Movement for People's Party released a great synopsis about the election results and how the results are a serious wake-up call for progressives here because... Yes, I have heard everywhere from democracy now to the nation, very progressive outlets are talking very positively about this, saying, this is amazing. I mean, it was a huge blue wave. We had a hundred women, a hundred women take positions of power. We even had Native Americans winning for the first time. So this is great, right? Um, Well, unfortunately, when you look down at the bare bones of who actually won, 
leading up to the election, um, there was a record number of CIA operatives running as Democrats, so former intelligence officers. So that was really interesting. So then you look up who actually won, right? Who actually won this? So the article starts by talking about, you know, how since 2016, since uh, Trump won in the shock victory, energized progressives have really sought to break this cycle, this power swing between Democrats and Republican establishment politicians. Quote, the four leading progressive organizations that emerged from Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign endorsed Democratic candidates across 46 states. Nearly all the candidates for Congress, governor, lieutenant governor, and Senate lost. Our Revolution, Justice Democrats, Brand New Congress, and the Democratic Socialists of America endorsed a combination 107 candidates for Congress this year. 44 of them won their primaries. Only 12 won their general elections. Five of those 12 were already incumbents. Five more of them were longtime party politicians in line for higher office rather than insurgent candidates. Only two of them were actually opposed by the party and unseated establishment Democrats in their primaries. And one of those two was Ocasio-Cortez. Another woman, Ayanna Presley. There are 435 members of Congress. It gets worse, though, as the article points out. Almost every candidate these groups endorsed for governor, lieutenant governor, and Senate lost in the primary or the general election. That includes 13 candidates for governor, five candidates for lieutenant governor, and seven more for U.S. Senate. Incumbents Bernie Sanders and David Zuckerman were the only ones that won. The article goes on to say, as a result, the blue wave is a corporate wave that has swept in the same kind of Democratic politicians that drove working people into Donald Trump's arms after eight years of Obama. When Democrats busy themselves serving the wealthy again, the result will be an even sharper lurch to the authoritarian right. Progressives cannot do the same thing year after year, charging headlong into the Democratic Party and expect different results. Breaking the cycle means changing your approach. So, I mean, it just kind of emboldened me reading this about how, you know, it is maddening to go and oscillate between blue and red and um, the lesser of two evils and to be berated election cycle after election cycle about how we have no choice but to buy in and how Democrats will leak left if we just push them from within the party. The system is beyond broken. Um, we have to listen to the large majority of Americans who want a major new party. We want a proportional representation. We want space for third parties and representation for people to the left of the centrist corporate Democrats. I mean, obviously, Democratic um, operatives and establishment media on MSNBC and CNN is acting like this is an enormous victory. This is the new future. I saw Michael Moore on Lawrence O'Donnell, and he was talking about how this is the new country. We've taken the country back. Really? You've taken the country back? I feel like we have to do a little bit more work, Michael, than taking back 30 seats of the House and barely winning it back. This is not a repudiation of fascism. This is not a repudiation of Trump and his policies. The fact that half the people didn't vote, first of all, still, and, and had no urgency to really participate. And the other point is that the Democrats have no consistency to their message. They have nothing but empty platitudes and baseless rhetoric that, yeah, they didn't invigorate anyone. They didn't move people to the polls in the tsunami that they anticipated. But they're just pretending like it was still a huge victory. I mean, Democrats should have swept the entire country. They should have swept the Senate. They should have swept the House. Unfortunately, they're running on identity politics. 
and they're running on something that does not resonate with the vast majority of American citizens. And so the GOP, they're running on blatant fascism, bigotry, racism. The Democrats just keep running on the other guy in these fumes of Russia fear-mongering. And the Democrats continue to remain silent and complicit while the GOP just dismantles every last vestige of democracy. And what did Nancy Pelosi say um, the second that they took back the House? She said, we want bipartisanship. We just want to work with Trump and the Republicans now. We want a bipartisan marketplace of ideas. That's their goal. Their goal is not to resist Trump, to try to stave off any of this. They want to work with them. We already know that they agree with them on the worst policies, the militarism, the war. They're trying to fight him from the right on the detente with Russia and North Korea. It's sick. So the fact that they did not overwhelmingly take back the House and Senate shows that we are in a very, very disturbing and tough road ahead, that the authoritarian right will continue to exploit the very real economic grievances that the vast majority of Americans have and continue to manipulate them and bring them over to the right and keep blaming migrants and immigrants for their problems because the the Democrats are complicit in the oligarchy. They want to protect the old guard. They don't want to point to themselves as part of the problem. So again, the Democrats will not eke one inch to the left of center. In fact, they want to open their tent to the right of center and work with these people. So what is that going to do for the next election? They think that that's a winning strategy? I mean, the fact that the Democrats didn't really just take back this country shows you how uh, damaging their entire platform is and how dark um, electoral politics really is. And it's pretty embarrassing, frankly. It's pretty fucking embarrassing how bad they did. And where are the Democrats on voter disenfranchisement? You know, you have Greg Palace, this investigative journalist who's trying to sue state governors for their voter purge lists. The disenfranchisement of tens of millions of voters across this country being purged by the tens, if not hundreds of thousands, state by state, that helps Democrats. These are minority and poor people getting purged from the, from the rolls. Where are they? Why is Greg Palace the only one talking about this? Why, why does he have to raise money to get these lists? Um, so yeah, I've just been talking, Robbie, about the midterms I read about you know, how the wave that came in was a corporate wave of longtime party politicians who are not insurgent candidates at all. So that's where we're at. Um, and, and that's why it's really scary to think about what's next. If this is what we got after two years of everyone watching what Trump and his ilk are doing, what's next? It's just a really bad sign for things to come. It's, mm-hmm. it's just really disturbing. I mean, did you, did you already mention... Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Talk about them. I mean, they once again, you know, when the Democrats took back the House, Nancy Pelosi is Speaker of the House again. So there's not even an attempt at all to even like re-steer the ship. It's just same shit from before. Same woman who, when she was Speaker of the House in Bush's second term, when they took the House back then, said that impeachment was off the table. Yep, here we are again, 15 years later. What an amazing shift we've taken. And she already telegraphed, she didn't say it literally like she had before, but she already telegraphed that impeachment is off the table again. Yeah, so I'll just go over the highlights really quick of of what happened state by state. Alabama and West Virginia voters passed measures that basically seized to recognize and protect a woman's right to have an abortion. 
so more anti-abortion legislation. We had Florida passing the historic Amendment 4, which will give ex-felons, 1.4 million of them, uh, regain their rights to vote, which is huge, especially in a swing state like Florida. We had Arkansas, Missouri voting to increase the minimum wage. We had Michigan legalizing marijuana and Utah and Missouri voting to legalize medical marijuana. And North Dakota rejected a measure to legalize marijuana. And then in California, I mean, pretty much every single proposition that I was rallying for lost. Prop 10 overwhelmingly lost. And even though it was neck and neck a couple months before the election, Trump's friends, these real estate uh, landlords and vulture capitalists, spending tens of millions of dollars to sow doubt in people's minds. And so, of course, uh, what did we do? Well, just like Prop 8, we voted against our, our best interests. And the overwhelming majority of Californians voted to make their rents go up. <laughs> so they voted for their rent to keep going up. Um, because they convinced every homeowner that this was bad for them, which is completely preposterous. So that lost. Hopefully it's the beginning of a movement that will eventually repeal Costa Hawkins in the next election. The public bank in L.A. overwhelmingly lost. Hopefully, again, this is, you know, the beginning of something. That's what I keep telling myself is that, you know, it has to start somewhere. And these two things were pretty new to the ballot and they were kind of new to the election and so hopefully the next election we can really put the momentum and the boots on the ground to get these things passed and to, to sort out the misinformation and the propaganda that's making people confused about them um you know the jungle primary really fucked up california so of course no third party candidates had any representation in the ballots only four people that were not democratic or republican party operatives even were on the general election ballot um, unfortunately the two Green Party challengers against corporate Democrats in L.A. lost. So that was really uh, surprising, I guess not too surprising. California is a lot more conservative than we'd like to think. Pelosi, I was really shocked at how much she took um, 86%. I guess people just still really love Nancy Pelosi in San Francisco. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, the only person I was like remotely okay with who was a Democrat, I don't even want to say generic Democrat, but someone who's been in a sitting Democrat for a while is Barbara Lee, even mm -hmm. though her the person who ran against her was from the Green Party. Her voting record is not perfect, but she did stand up for some very important things when they mattered most. She's one of the only Democrats I have respect for, I guess. Right. Yeah, she was fighting against the AUMF. Mm -hmm. She was the only person to vote against that and urged caution about this endless war that we're in now. Um, I was really stunned to see, out of all people, Dianne Feinstein victorious because even the party abandoned her. They wouldn't even endorse her before the election. That's how like toxic she was. Wow. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I thought that Kevin DeLeon would take it no problem, and he lost uh, 10 percentage points. I mean, she really epitomizes the worst of the corporate Democrats. Her husband's tied to the defense industry. She just is nothing but just empty rhetoric about affordable housing and affordable health care, yet she refuses to actually endorse any policy. Um, and she only turned against the death penalty just this year because she saw that progressives were turning away from her. So that I just can't believe that she won against Kevin DeLeon. It's just nuts. She's one of the worst Democrats, you know, ever. I can't think of it. There's not very many Democrats who would rank in that category of like top five worst Democrats. She's definitely in somewhere in there. Yeah. And it was just so crazy to see again how screwed up this 
like so-called democracy is. I mean, people waiting in line for miles long, like two machines in some of these areas with like, you know, an enormous amount of people just waiting, like, and people had to work (laughs) again. We don't have the day off for election days. So not only did you have to work, but you had to spend hours of your day waiting in line. And again, back to the voter disenfranchisement, where is everyone on this issue? Shouldn't we first and foremost be fixing like all of the problems with our election? If the Democrats are so obsessed about voter turnout and how they just only care about getting Democratic votes. Um, I just don't understand how there's not a revolt already. Like seeing these machines and the pictures of people just waiting. I just can't believe it. It's just interesting how there isn't even like a real mobilization for like a, like a work holiday, mm-hmm. a mandatory like work holiday for voting or anything like that. I mean, it does seem like the powers that be are still interested in discouraging most people from voting mm-hmm. in, in a general sense. They just want to play with the remaining scraps. That's how they calculate and game out the elections. It's like they don't, they genuinely, like the Democratic Party genuinely does not want the, these, all these people who don't vote to all of a sudden start voting. I really believe that. I mean, I, I think if they did, it would not work out necessarily in their favor. So it's, it's just like they want to just play with those very small amount of, you know, it's, what is it, 40% of the public that votes mm-hmm. and keep playing with that number. Because that their whole system is like built around that all their gamed out strategies. If they right. actually, stu- you know, were truly interested in getting everybody to vote, it would completely change the game, you know, and might actually make them less powerful. So, yeah. And unfortunately, we're so entrenched in tribalism and partisanship that the Democrats, they're designed and basically paid to lose because they could easily win if they ran on progressive issues that the overwhelming majority of Americans agree with. Um, Abolishing college debt, a Green New Deal, net neutrality, actual Medicare for all. I mean, there, I just told you how to win. Um, They'll never do that, though, because, again, they don't want to hurt their profit-making. They don't want to hurt their bottom line. They're tied to all this shit, too. No more wars. Hey, what happened to the anti-war movement? What happened to one fucking candidate talking about war? You know, here we are bombing seven countries. I mean, and and that's why we're left with these propped up supposed anti-war heroes like Tulsi Gabbard, who, you know, has said very Islamic phobic things. Um, She says she is a dove on intervention, but a hawk on terrorists. I mean, that is not an anti-war stance at all. I don't care how you try to spin it. If you subscribe to the war on terror, even a little bit, it's not compatible with being anti-war. That is the most fictional war ever manufactured, the war on terror. So it's it's sad that there is really no anti-war energy in, in terms of the like candidates running for election. Yeah, and it's sad that this is just what we have. I mean, this is our electoral system. It's beyond laughable that mm-hmm. here the U.S. is invading and destabilizing countries all over the world, and this is the shit elections that we have, the gerrymandering, the disenfranchisement, all of this shit's exceptional. We are an exceptional country and having literally one of the worst election systems in the free, quote-unquote, free world. Um, and, and the fact that all of this energy is put into elections anyway, it's such a disempowering notion that really all that matters is you go and just plug in a vote every two to four years. I mean, that's insane. Um, that completely demoralizes people 
And elections are an extremely minuscule part of how anything changes in this country. We already know that tens of millions of people on the streets pushing these politicians, whether they be Democratic or Republican, is the only way that policy is ever made. That's why we saw massive immigration reform even you know, during Bush and Reagan, because millions of people were in the streets fighting for it. So it doesn't matter if it's a Democrat or Republican. And that's why it's really sad um, for them to vote shame you every time. Vote shame, yeah, not vote, just vote shame, shame, vote shame. But like- shaming, you know, people for for demanding and trying to put on heat on Nancy Pelosi now that she's the speaker. I already see neoliberals saying like, hmm, isn't it strange that the same people who are criticizing Nancy Pelosi now are also criticizing Hillary Clinton gender bias? And it's like, oh, my God, you are literally trying to weaponize some kind of like fake identity politics talking point to subvert the democratic process. Like, that's part of the democracy. You know, if you want to call what we live in a democracy, it really isn't. But that's part of the process. That's how the political process works. You put heat on sitting politicians, especially if they're ones that you think are capable of carrying out even part of your, you know, your agenda or your beliefs. It yeah, makes more I, sense, actually, if you're on the left to protest and put heat on Nancy Pelosi than it does to protest Trump. In front of, of the course. White House. That's actually not going to be effective. So I, I just am shocked that I see grown adults being that blind or just manipulative and, and, and saying shit like that. It's like, wow, you really haven't learned anything. Or you're just trying to really shame people out of actually standing up for what they believe in. And just accept the status quo. It's disgusting either way. Yeah, and a couple of crazy things that happen. I mean, um, Democrat... McCaskill tried to win her election by literally just appealing to racists and like adopting Trump's rhetoric and she lost the Republican anyway. Great job. And Chicago, a straight up Holocaust denier and neo-Nazi, like straight up. Arthur Jones received 55,000 votes. 55,000 people voted for a literal Nazi in Chicago. And then you turn to Maryland, Ben Jealous, the former director of the NAACP, he lost his governor race even though, check this out, And by the way, he's African-American, obviously. Um, Democrats outnumber Republicans in Maryland two to one, yet he lost two to one. So voters voted for a white Republican over a popular black Democrat, even though they were mostly all Democrats. (laughs) Very interesting. Yeah, and then you have a couple of congressional candidates who won based on their centrist campaigns. And um, one of them, a Michigan congressional candidate, won And everyone's like, oh, my God, she flipped the state from red to blue. And it's like, dude, she literally advised Bush on the Iraq war. Um, So, yeah, I mean, the duopoly just completely hurts our our country. It hurts our democracy. It, It stifles democracy. We need to stop candidate suppression and we need to open the tent to um, Green Party and socialist candidates because you know, with ranked choice voting, which is something that would really, really solve this problem. It's not about Green Party candidates winning necessarily. It's about building a coalition. It's about the Democrats being forced to build a coalition with leftist parties if they get a certain amount, you know what I mean? And a certain amount of support. They would have no choice. That's what we see in the Labor Party all the time. So if you don't understand the importance of this, and it's just, again, back to your point, like how are we not seeing mobilized efforts for ranked choice voting for, um, you know, these disenfranchisement policies to rectify all of these problems with our elections, you know, abolish the electoral college, 
there's a million things that we could be doing. I, I don't know if it's just too overwhelming, if people are just too distracted, but it just seems like putting tens of millions of dollars and all of your focus and energy into these election cycles without addressing the core fundamental problems with our election, it, it just seems like we're just going to keep beating a dead horse here. Yeah, and and you know, and it's not a surprise that a lot of these candidates who even you know run on quasi-socialist platforms or you know are attacking the Democratic Party from the left, they a lot of them end up being very disappointing in the end or really caving or telegraphing things where you're like, wait a second, I thought that this person was actually like kind of radical, you know? So it's, it's, you got to be careful for that too. Like don't put all your eggs in the basket of one candidate, you know, like I, I think I agree with what you're saying. Like these are more important fundamental issues that people should be, you know, getting behind like the abolishing the electoral college. That's a really straightforward one. Very straightforward. Did you mention Tim Canova yet at all? No, go ahead. I mean, I just wanted to mention the weirdness with him. I mean, I've seen all these like quasi-progressive people really pushing him really hard, like he's the next... And talk about who he is. Like, what, what is his deal? And he's been claiming for a long time that voter fraud done on him to make him lose against his congressional race against Debbie Wasserman Schultz in Florida. And he was claiming this as far back as... So two, two, So back in 2016, he was endorsed by Bernie Sanders. He had an, inf, an influx and an injection of like huge amounts of cash. And he got a lot of votes and he was running as a Democrat. But after the election was over, he claimed that Debbie Wasserman Schultz... That the election was basically nullified, the results. This, this election... He's claiming the same thing, even though apparently, and I think you told me this, according to like the polling or the vote counts, he only got something like 5% of the vote. Right. But he's claiming again that voter fraud was committed again by Debbie Wasserman Schultz against him. And what's interesting is, and I don't know if he started this focus or if other right-wing groups did, but like the right-wing spin machine picked up and ran with that. Laura Loomer went to confront some woman that was involved down in Florida, um, all these different right-wingers have been trying to inject themselves into this. And then Tim Canova, I saw him retweet Laura Loomer. How bizarre is it that you're claiming to run as this Bernie-style progressive and you would be stupid enough? You know, if you want to look at it as a mistake, like he was dumb and didn't realize who she was, that's a big deal, even still, to be that irresponsible to retweet someone like that. On the other hand, what if it wasn't a mistake? What if he is one of these griftery guys who is letting the right sort of, you know, signal boost him to, like, I don't know. I mean, like, we talk about these type of people a lot. You know, we don't name names directly because there's a lot of them. I, I don't know what he's actually doing, but it's very strange. This is how apparently anti-Democrat he is. It just goes to show that some of these you know, Bernie or bus style progressives who are so anti-Democrat actually end up subscribing to neocon ideology. He actually wrote, um, uh, he, he did an opposition platform. You know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz is a corrupt piece of shit. I have zero appreciation for her. I think she's a terrible politician, one of the worst out there. However, she still took the right position on the Iran deal. Tim Canova actually took the opposing position and said, and actually in a statement, his campaign release said that Iran is the biggest funder of Hamas and Hezbollah. 
And basically wow. they need to be punished for it. I'm just thinking, this is a progressive, like so it's supposed to be to the left of the Democratic Party. And yet Debbie Wasserman Schultz took a more left anti-neocon position of him than the, on the Iran deal, something extremely important. That to me really says a lot. And I'm not just saying it because this guy seems like a grifter, but I'm very careful about supporting any candidate unless I look at all their positions. And I have very, there's very important positions to me. And that's one of them. If you don't support the Iran deal, I don't, I don't support you at all. Like, I didn't even know that about him before I saw him retweeting Laura Loomer. So it's just, it's just bad news, man. Stink. It really stinks to high heaven. It's stunning that any so-called progressive would give her legitimacy and also, I don't buy it that they don't know who these people are. They know exactly who these people are, and mm-hmm. they want they want the the hits. I mean, that's they what it really the, is about. They want, they the, want the clicks, boosting, just like yeah. these quasi progressives out there who say we need to work with Jack Posobiec and Cernovich. Why are they doing that? Because they're genuinely ignorant of how racist and neo Nazi like dog whistler and how neocon these people are. I think that's actually unlikely. I think it's the more likely possibility is they really, really like that boost. When Cernovich retweets them, when Pasalbiak retweets them, that boost is the kind of their bread and butter. Tim Canova is obviously benefiting from this. The problem is that he he lost. And instead of kind of packing up gracefully and understanding how to build the movement from here, he's making it into a giant, basically, gift to the right wing. So yeah, I don't know what's going on with this Tim Canova guy. All I know is that anyone who endorses Laura Loomer and doesn't immediately retract and recant and apologize for promoting fascists if they didn't know that they did, um, that's really suspicious. And that makes that person really, really not trustworthy. And that makes you not a progressive either. Because if I accidentally retweeted David Duke and then I just casually left it up on my timeline after someone told me that, you know, who he was, yeah, that's a problem. That's a big problem. Yeah, I agree. But um, let's wrap it up and we'll do, we're going to do an empire update and we're going to do a Palestine, Afghanistan update, but we just have been going on for too long. So we'll have to do that in the next podcast. But let's just give some little positive reinforcement for the end of this one. I mean, I know we've been ranting and raving and probably you feel depressed about the elections and about where we're at, but I mean, look at gay marriage and, and, and... um, marijuana legalization here in California. It didn't pass at first. It took a couple times. It took a couple iterations, and now we have it. I mean, I walk down the street and can buy weed. It's amazing. You know, my friends can get married here who are gay. That's incredible. It's the beginning of something. It's the beginning of a movement um, of workers organizing and and uh, people organizing themselves because that's exactly what needs to happen. Again, change will not happen from the top down. It's never going to happen from these establishment politicians. We need to organize and push for ranked choice voting in states. We need to push for electoral reform if we want representation. And we need to push for organizing and, and an anti-war movement. Um, and that's the only thing that we can really do. We can do what we can do, and we can't do anything else. And so just do what you can do, whether it be art, music, leaving Facebook comments, joining a group, pick an issue that speaks most to you, because these things can really, really happen on a local level. And that's, in fact, the only time that change can really happen is on a local level and local efforts like that. So tune out uh, electoral politics on a federal level as much as you can and just do what you can do in your own community. Trump is um, embracing and flirting with fascism more every day. And it's important to speak to your friends, neighbors, and colleagues about what's going on and try to shed some light and some truth and break through this ridiculous rhetoric that conflates the left with 
fascists and stuff and just try to explain to people these basic concepts because that's where we're at. We're seriously back to like very basic explainers and critical thinking and media literacy and these concepts need to be reintroduced, frankly, because reality has completely severed our uh, brain stems. So it's up to us to re-educate people and to encourage people to um, become media literate and understand what is going on and how these trends are repeating themselves throughout history. So I hope that you enjoyed the podcast. I hope that you learned some. I hope that you, you know, got your frustrations out listening and, and hopefully yelling along with us. But um, yeah, thank you so much. And we're going to put out another podcast this month talking about all of the foreign policy updates, the Empire update, and also a special bonus episode on the Magnitsky Act. Right, Robbie? Yeah, Magnitsky Act behind the scenes documentary, which we already reviewed. That that'll be coming out soon. Great. Yeah, and the Anthrax Part Two. So. Very excited about that. Everyone stay tuned. Please donate to us on Patreon. You can unlock our little bonus episode there for as little as a dollar a month um, or $5 a month, you know, just the same as a cup of coffee. So please uh, donate to us. We spend a lot of time and effort into these podcasts and we really appreciate your feedback and support and we love you and we hope to hear from you. Yes. Thank you, everybody. So for your generous support, we really appreciate it. Tune in next time.